in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, notes that God does not choose his servants based on the judgments or the standards of this world. Instead, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's another way of saying God does not play by our rules, nor does he depend on our strength. He wants us to recognize that the power and the victory and the help and the comfort come from him and not from us. Now, our first text from Exodus demonstrated rather clearly that God's people in Egypt, which were, in a very real sense, a picture of God's people throughout the ages, they were in a difficult place. God had blessed them and was continuing to bless them, but the world saw them as a threat sought to oppress them, sought to bring them low, in part at least because they were in dread of the people of Israel, because they were fearful of the God whom we serve. No matter how much they oppressed the people, the people were blessed. That terrified them and made them all the more filled with resolve to humble and bring low the people of God. That's where we live throughout this age. And yet, God does not leave us without help, by any means. But He also does not deliver us in the way that we might expect. He doesn't send Captain America or Superman or SEAL Team 6 or some powerful leader whom we might anticipate would deliver us. God raises up unlikely heroes who are weak and despised in the eyes of the world because God wants it to be clear that He is the one who is saving us. He is the one in whom our hope must be placed. And our deliverers are merely instruments in His hand. That's what we see here in this text. God delivers his people through the humble faith of unlikely heroes. He delivers us through the humble faith of unlikely heroes. And he begins showing us that by revealing the threat from which deliverance is needed. So the first section of our text, verses 15 and 16, show us the command of an ungodly king. Remember what we saw last time. This was... Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, a powerful man, but he did not remember Joseph. He did not remember, remember hundreds of years had passed. He had neither the knowledge nor the desire to gain the knowledge of why Israel was in the midst of Egypt of how richly God had blessed and preserved 
Egypt through Israel. All this man knew was that this was a powerful people who did not identify themselves as Egyptians. They spoke differently, acted differently, served a different God, had different commitments. And here they were in the midst of Egypt, a threat. He sought to bring them low through slavery, through harsh oppression. Didn't work. They kept growing. They kept multiplying. So now he calls to himself two women from the Hebrews, their midwives, named Shifra and Puah. Now, some of you children don't know what a midwife is. The simple explanation is a midwife is a woman who knows all about babies and moms. They know all the ins and outs of how to help a mother receive her child, receive her baby. And if something goes wrong or or there's a a problem, they know what to do about it. And so they're oriented around, they're they're focused on the well-being of mothers and babies. That's what they live for. Right? They don't get a lot of public attention. They live for being there for mothers in their most needed time and babies in their most vulnerable times. Now here these two midwives are singled out by name, Shifra and Pua. Now some commentators note that that seems like way too few midwives for such a large people. That might be the case. It might be that these were merely the heads of the midwives. It might be that these were just two, that Pharaoh was kind of running a trial program with two of them to see how it worked. Or it might be that Israel just needed more midwives. We don't know. We know that God related to Moses the story of these two and told how they were brought into the presence of Egypt's king. Now that had to be daunting. Because as important as midwives are, they don't seek out the limelight. They're really fascinating. I've known a number of midwives through the birth of our own children. Fascinating women. They tend to be exceptionally capable, overbearing at times even. They have to be, right? Because they have to be the voice of calmness and sanity when things go wrong. But they don't seek the limelight, right? They work in... Bedrooms and back rooms, in dimly lit places. The focus is on the mother, and then the focus is on the child. They're not seeking attention, but here suddenly they're in the throne room of the the mighty king of Egypt. And the king speaks a command to them that is unthinkable. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, a birth stool was a device that midwives used and still use to help women, especially in the final stages of pregnancy. A birth stool allows a woman to labor in a way that allows gravity to help her, that allows her to get as comfortable as she could be. Uh, But it also puts her in a very vulnerable position. She is unable to use that birth stool without the help of a midwife because somebody's got to catch this baby now, right? And the king says, this is what I want you to do when that child comes forth. I want you to make an immediate judgment. Is it a boy? If it's a boy, you use that moment of vulnerability. You use that moment 
of chaos and confusion, you use that moment to kill that child. He doesn't tell them how. Make it look like an accident. Make it look like it happened naturally. Doesn't matter. Just make sure the boys die. Now a question arises. Why the boys and not the girls? I believe there are two reasons for that. The first reason, which is most likely what was in the mind of Pharaoh, is that he wanted to maximize Israel's usefulness while minimizing their threat. (coughs) Remember we saw last time that he was fearful that not just that Israel might turn against them, but that they might leave. This was their slave labor. They were a great resource to Egypt. So he didn't want to be without them, but at the same time the boys were a threat. Because boys grow up into men. Men grow into soldiers. So you get rid of the boys, or at least most of them, and you get rid of the threat, the ones that are going to fight against you. But meanwhile, you keep the women because they can still work. And they're your breeding stock. They're the ones who will bring forth the next generation. You see, he's treating them like cattle, like livestock getting rid of the ones that will be a threat, keeping the ones who can work and have more babies. In that way, he hopes to humble Israel, to show them their place. You are nothing more to us than livestock. That's what Pharaoh's aiming for. But there's a second reason. At the very start of our sinful condition, God spoke a word of curse to Adam and to Eve, and to the serpent, who was the embodiment of Satan. And he said to the serpent, there will be enmity, there will be hatred between the woman and you, between the woman's offspring and your offspring. And he says that the woman's offspring, he says, you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And the way he spoke that indicated that it would be a boy. It would be the woman's son. Revelation 12 shows us that ever since that point, Satan worked to destroy the coming son. And there's a lot of ways we could trace that throughout Genesis. But I think that's part of what's happening here. He knows that one of the male offspring of Eve, one of the male offspring of God's chosen people, would be the one to crush his head. The women aren't a threat to Satan, the boys are. And so he strives to destroy all the boys. That's the bigger picture, the background picture here. That's the threat. And you know, it's a threat that continues today. Because the boy Satan so feared was born, lived his life, obtained the victory. That's Jesus Christ. He rules on the throne even today. But Revelation 12 tells us that didn't end Satan's fury. Seeing that he was unable to devour the child, he went after the mother, which is the church. He went after the offspring, which are the saints. And he strives to do all that he can to destroy the offspring of the Lord, the adopted children who have been brought to God through Christ. And so we still face this same kind of thing, only now now he's not just going after the little boys, he's going after all of God's people. 
That command of this unrighteous king, that, that's a command that echoes today throughout the world against the people of God, against the children of the Lord. The threat continues. However, immediately after that command, we read this, but the midwives feared God. Now God tells us that there in order to explain what comes next. He wants to show us that what the midwives do is born of this fearing of the Lord, this faith. You see, that's what it means to fear the Lord. Fearing God is different than than fearing storms or fearing the dark or fearing cancer or fearing an enemy. Fearing God is a matter of respecting Him, recognizing that He is the one over all things, that He is the one who holds our lives in His hand, recognizing His sovereign control over all things and bowing to it. Fearing God is another way of saying, I have faith in the Lord. Those who truly fear God set Him at the top of their list of priorities. They trust Him more than they trust anyone else. They love Him in a way they love no one else. They follow Him even when everyone else says to go a different direction. So this is not saying that the midwives lacked respect for the king. If you fear God, you respect the king. You recognize that God established him there. But fearing God means that you you honor him over the king. And if the king rebels against God... You serve God first. In their hearts, they set God higher than Pharaoh. And because they feared God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. See, fearing God, having faith in God, has real consequences. Young people hear this. Fearing the Lord means more than making profession of faith. It should mean that. But it means more than making profession of faith and sitting in these pews on Sunday. True fearing of God, true faith in the Lord impacts every part of life. How you act is affected by your faith in God. Whom you obey is affected by your faith in God. What you believe, what you say, what consequences you're willing to accept. All flows from our fear of the Lord. Now these two women... They would have understood that to disobey Pharaoh would have dreadful consequences. In ancient Egypt, Pharaoh was the law. They regarded him as the physical manifestation of their highest God. And so what Pharaoh spoke was implicitly, because Pharaoh spoke it, the truth. What Pharaoh commanded, because he commanded it, it was the law. There was no legislature. There was no law-making body, no court of appeal. If Pharaoh said it, that was the final word. And so disobeying Pharaoh was an instant death sentence. Nonetheless, they did disobey. They did not kill the baby boys. And it wasn't because they lacked opportunity. Verse 17 is very clear that this was an intentional act. They let, they allowed the male children to live. Which means they had opportunity to obey. But because they feared the Lord, they refused. And of course their disobedience is discovered. Right? Didn't take spies to recognize that their... Hebrew women walking around carrying newborns, and those newborns are little boys. Clearly, they're not doing what Pharaoh said to do. And so, verse 18, 
The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Shifra and Pua find themselves in the courtroom. And Pharaoh doesn't pull any punches. His question assumes their guilt. You've done this. The only question is why? And yet even here, we see evidence of God's sustaining grace. You see, Pharaoh didn't have to welcome them into his throne room again. The evidence of their disobedience was in all those mothers' arms. He could have simply said, you and you, go kill them, to two of his servants, because they had disobeyed. There was no guarantee in Egyptian law that you get a, a trial. Pharaoh says, you're guilty, you're guilty. Pharaoh says, kill them, you, you get dead. But God puts it in his heart to want to know why. How dare you lowly Hebrew women disobey the great Pharaoh of Egypt? He wants to know how they dare to do this. Why? That's God's mercy. Because it gives them opportunity. They, they answer the Lord, or the, the Pharaoh. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. What they're claiming is that they had no opportunity to obey the king. I mean, we get there, the baby's already born. What are we going to do, snatch him out of his mother's arm and throw him on the ground? We can't do that, we'd get killed by the Israelites. So in that case, it's not really their fault, is it? But, they weren't telling the truth. We know that because verse 17 is very clear. They allowed the babies to live. And realistically, if you think about it, if what they said was true, if they had no opportunity to kill these babies, why were there even midwives? You don't need a midwife if the babies keep being born before the midwife gets there. They were lying. The question is why? Remember what we just read here. But the midwives feared God. Therefore they did not do as the king commanded them. And I submit to you, therefore, they spoke these words to Pharaoh. Under almost every normal circumstance, the proper course, the course of action that is required of those who fear the Lord, because He is the God of truth, is to tell the truth. Kids, you know that, right? It is a sin to lie. It's a, a bearing of false testimony. We shouldn't do that. But this was that almost unheard of exception. What would have happened had they told Pharaoh the truth. Yes, Pharaoh, we heard your command, and yes, we had opportunity, but our God, the true God whom we serve, He commanded, when Noah landed after the flood, He commanded that by, whoever, by whomever the blood of man is shed, or that person, His blood should be shed, He should be killed. 
Because man bears the image of God, we must not destroy man. They could have done that, and they would have died right then and there. And Pharaoh would have assumed, my plan is workable. I just need different people to implement it. These midwives might not have been willing. I'll find others. But by what they told him, they were telling Pharaoh, the plan won't work. You can tell all the midwives you want to kill these little baby boys. It won't work. They won't get there in time. And you know what? Pharaoh believed them. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to wrestle with the fact that they acted, they spoke out of faith. It is exceedingly rare when the right thing to do is what they did there, but those times do have sometimes occurred. When authorities seek the life of someone unrighteously and your lie can protect him. When during war an enemy demands information that will be used to destroy an innocent people and your lie can mislead them. When a godless power seeks to harm the church and your lie can give God's people time to escape, in such rare cases it can be righteous for God's servants to mislead the enemy of God. But in those cases the lie flows from their unwavering faith. There's a powerful calling here for us, brothers and sisters. Not the calling to lie. Please, kids, don't get that idea but rather the calling to fear God with the conviction of an unwavering faith. To fear God, to stand in awe of His power, His wisdom, His holiness, His goodness. To bow before Him as the sovereign over all men, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We must fear Him in such a way that we set Him over and above all else. Young people, that has implications. If you truly fear the Lord, that will affect what career you choose, what entertainment you enjoy, whom you date, whom you marry, and whom you don't. How you respond when you are urged to hurt someone innocent. How you answer when the government calls you to act unjustly. Faith in God always must be our motivation. And serving Him, glorifying Him, must be our goal. If faith is what drives you, it may well lead you to some hard choices. Will you reject what seems like the perfect job, the job you've been looking for, because it will require you to compromise in terms of what God has commanded you? Will you refuse the opportunity of a relationship with the most beautiful woman, the most attractive man, because they don't truly love and serve the Lord? Will you stand up for what is right, knowing that it'll bring the scorn of men or the wrath of the government? The cost of those decisions can be exceptionally high. It can cost you money, status, power. It can mean the loss of jobs, the loss of reputation, the loss of friends, of family. It can even bring the loss of your earthly life. But remember what Jesus said in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but after that, 
have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Men, they can harm us. They can even take away our life. But you know what? The 70, 80 years we live here, barely a drop in the bucket. In the face of all eternity. In the light of eternity, in the light of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth which God has promised us. The absolute greatest things this world can offer you are as nothing. So even if it means standing before Pharaoh in a sense. And recognize if he had caught them not just disobeying but also lying about it. They wouldn't have died quickly or easily. But because they feared the Lord. They followed him rather than bow to men. When, by God's grace, you follow the Lord with that kind of faith, it will not go unnoticed by him. And it's to assure us of that that Moses is led to include the last part of our text. Here we find the third point that that there's a consequence to uncompromising faithfulness. In fact, there are three that are laid out here. First, he says... In verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. He was gracious toward them. He treated them with divine favor. And it's a blessing that flows from their acting in faith. Now please understand, they didn't earn that blessing. We do absolutely everything God calls us to do. We've only done what we were made and designed to do. We don't deserve any extra for that. And yet God, as our loving Father, delights To do it. He blesses them. He cares for them. He spares them from Pharaoh's wrath. He allows them to continue with this glorious calling they have to help bring forth new life. And second, also from verse 20. The people multiplied and grew very strong. God continued to multiply his people and bless them with more children. It's an echo of verse 7. Yet again, Pharaoh has sought to, to crush the people of God. And yet again, God has responded by blessing them, by multiplying them, by spreading them. And this too is a consequence of the midwives' faith. Apart from faith, Pharaoh's plan would have, apart from their faith, Pharaoh's plan would have succeeded. Absent their faith, many of those babies would have died. But God used their faith. And the uncompromising faithfulness that flowed from it to bless all of Israel. And in fact, now, verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That's a kind of a loose translation. I want to read what the the New King James, how they render it. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. For them is a crucial phrase there. Because it's masculine in the Hebrew. It couldn't have referred merely to the midwives. He's referring to all the people. To the Israelites as a whole. Because the midwives had faith, 
God provided households. God provided family lines. God gave more branches to Abraham's family tree as a result, as a consequence of their faith. And so God teaches us here that he watches his servants and graciously, lovingly, even though he doesn't have to, he blesses their faithful response to him. How amazing is that? And what an amazing gift for us to look forward to. Some of you have been called to be elders. Hard work. A lot of nights away from your family. Dealing with difficult issues that you didn't even know existed in the church. And it's so tempting to heal the wound of your people lightly. To say peace, peace, where there is no peace. To say it's all fine and to turn a blind eye at those marriages that are falling apart and those children that are going astray. And the... But fearing the Lord, we can't do that. We have to do the hard work of calling the wayward to repent intervening in the marriage that's falling apart, of calling those who are taking their faith lightly to take it seriously, of catechizing the children, of visiting the families. If we've done that, we haven't earned a thing. And yet God promises to bless it, not just for you and for your family, but for all the church. Likewise, you parents... Hard calling to be parents. Blessing. Oh, a rich blessing. I don't want to discourage the ones with little children. It's a rich blessing. I just got to hold my grandson. How amazing is that? But a lot of work, too. Not the grandparent part, the parenting. A lot of work to that. And I remember when, they, when mine were little and I couldn't wait until they got bigger and, you know, it wasn't so hard. <laughs> I was dumb. But that hard work of raising children and teens and adult children, God blesses that when we do it in faith, when we do it seeking His glory, when we do it striving to bring them before the Lord. God graciously blesses not just us, but them and the children who follow after them for the generations. How amazing is that? just at a conference this past weekend and, and uh, Paul Murphy was speaking. He's a church planter in New York City. He used to be the pastor in Dutton. And uh, he said, you know, in their church, everybody's a convert. Everybody's a first-generation Christian, except they, they have one family, their token Dutch family. And, uh, and they were in the practice for a while of, in their evening time together, they would offer a time for people to come forward and explain what the Lord had done for them. Just testify to how God had worked in their life sovereignly to draw them to himself. And they had never heard from this, uh, this Dutch Reformed family. So one day they said, we'd like to hear from you guys. And so they came up and told their story and how they didn't ever remember not being Christians, husband or wife. How they remembered their parents and their grandparents worshiping the Lord and trusting the Lord and Pastor Murphy said, I asked them, how, how long have you been 
Christians? How long has your family been in the faith? And they stopped and thought. So about 500 years. What an amazing thing. What an amazing blessing. And it comes through that hard work of fearing the Lord. And because of your fear, for, fear of the Lord, serving Him with an uncompromising faithfulness that says, you know what, I'm not going to ignore this hard time. I'm not going to ignore this waywardness of my child. I'm going to dive into the deep end of figuring out how to navigate all the technology and all the pitfalls and all the temptations and all the challenges and all the rebellions. And I'm going to show them love no matter what. I'm going to bring them to the Lord no matter what. And I'm going to trust. Hear this. I'm not going to trust my efforts. If they were trusting their efforts, Shifra and Pua would have died right there before Pharaoh. But I'm going to trust the Lord to use my feeble efforts, to bless my feeble efforts. And he will. That's the end of our text. But I want you to notice the last, verb, or the last verse of the chapter. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You know what that tells us? It tells us, first of all, Shifra and Pua's plan worked. He believed them. He didn't kill them. He didn't tell other midwives to do it instead. Praise the Lord. But it also tells us that Satan doesn't give up. When one tactic fails, he just goes to a new game plan. And another one, and another one, and another one after that. Which means until Jesus comes back, we're going to fight this fight. We're going to stand between these opposing forces. And the only way we can do it is the way that these two amazing, humble ladies did it through the humble faith of daily looking to the Lord, fearing the Lord, serving the Lord, trusting the Lord. And brothers and sisters, He will bless it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are so much more gracious than we expect or anticipate. You provide in ways that we could never foresee or imagine. And we're so thankful. I pray that you would bless this people. The Israel of today, living in the Egypt of America, with the humble faith that would lead them uncompromisingly to serve you with faithfulness trusting that you will use their obedience, their submission to you, their fear of the Lord to bless those around them and those who are to come. And Father, we pray that you would so use us, we who are weak and powerless, in such a way that it would be evident that you are the one who has done this and that you would receive all the glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in answer to this text 